Well, four years ago, Pastor Stephen Ganchow, who is our counseling pastor. How many of you know Pastor Stephen? Awesome guy. He had just moved here. Their family had just moved here. He had just joined the the Bethel church staff team, and so we're getting to know one another, and we said, hey, let's do lunch. Like, let's really get to know each other. This will be great. And so we're at the Crown Point campus. We're going to a restaurant in Merrillville off of Highway 30, and we are just in really good conversation in the car, really good discussion. I mean, you know, you know when you're deeply engaged, you're not really focusing on anything else, you're distracted, you're just in good conversation. That's my first excuse for what I'm about to tell you. Second thing is it was pouring down. I mean, like the kind of rain we had yesterday morning and kind of this morning, I mean, a hurricane level, like deluge, just you couldn't see anything. Visibility was low. I'm driving, I'm like, I can't see anything. And so I get to Highway 30, and we're in good conversation. And as I'm driving, can't see anything. The road that we're supposed to turn off has a big barricade that says road closed. And I don't know how else to get there. I mean, the restaurant is right there. It's right there. Like, I could throw a stone at it. It's right there. And so I see this empty lot in front of that road where they're building a gas station. And I didn't see this sign, but it said construction zone. And I thought to myself, well, I'll just pull into this lot, and I'll pull around this building here, and I'll hop back on the road, get past the construction, and we'll be right there in the restaurant. And so I did. Again, visibility low, deeply engaged in discussion. Those are the two excuses I'm going with here. And so I drive into a construction zone around the gravel, and, and I get up to the building and I realize, oh, there's no way around. Like, there's no way you can get around, and uh-oh, this, is, this looks bad. And by this time, Peter, Pastor Stephen uh, uh, stopped talking. <laughs> and I, I know he was thinking, what madman did I get in a car with? Like, what is going on? Is this the restaurant? What is, what is this? And so I realized I, I can't I can't get around anywhere. I can't even pull through, so I'm going to have to back up. And so I start going in reverse, and I get two feet. I'm not joking, two feet from the car going into an eight-feet-foot drop, this huge hole where they're putting in the gas pumps. I didn't go in because that would be a whole different story, but two feet from there. And then we go, oh. And so I stopped, and I'm like, all right, well, let me, let me pull forward and try their reverse again. Well, I tried to pull forward, and <laughs> Some of you have been there. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Woo! All right, well, just try to reverse, but don't go too fast. You're going to go into that hole. Okay. Woo! And then we do what guys do when, when you're stuck like that. We get out, go to the back of the car. Yep, she's stuck. And, I mean, it is deep. I've never seen this kind of mud. Deep in the mud. Just. And so Stephen, great guy that he is, says, all right, I'll push. I'll get in the back. I'll push. You just hit that accelerator. You go. And so, spits all kinds of mud at him. His vest, dirtied. <laughs> Which now, I didn't know him as well as, he's one of my closest friends now. Now I see the glory in that. But, so, <laughs> that didn't work. So we go to the nearby dumpster and we find some two-by-fours and we stick those under the tires. Like, okay, this will help us get some traction. Spits those two-by-fours out. Praise God, no one was behind us. They're like, okay, that didn't work. We find some plywood. We stick some plywood under there, and, and we, we, we're trying to dig out with our hands, you know, get it really under there, get some traction, because if you're stuck, you got to get traction to get movement. So we get that plywood under there, really stick it under. Woo! Nothing. In fact, it broke the plywood, and it went deeper into the mud. 
Meanwhile, the construction guys, because it's a downpour, are inside this gas station building looking through the window, laughing like I've never seen before. And a guy comes out from the gas station. I'm pretty sure he was the foreman. And he goes, hey, you know you're not supposed to drive in here, right? (laughs) Yeah, I know that now. You're stuck pretty good there. Yeah, you're not helping. Probably shouldn't drive in here. (sighs) I know! And then he walks back in, doesn't help at all. So we're there for another hour trying to dig ourselves out. And finally, Stephen goes, bro, I think you got to call the tow truck, which for a guy is like admitting defeat. And I'm like, I know, because we were stuck. There was no help, no way for us to get unstuck unless we had help, unless we had traction, something to pull us out. And folks, I'm here to tell you, some of you are stuck spiritually. And you are spinning your wheels, spinning your wheels, spinning your wheels, and you just go deeper and deeper and deeper into the muck of life. You feel stuck. You feel plateaued. And you've tried plywood. You've tried two-by-fours. You've tried to gain some traction on your own power, and it's nothing doing. You just sink deeper and deeper. You haven't noticed growth spiritually in years or at least months. And you're stuck, stuck in your walk with Jesus. Now, the whole sermon title today, by the way, is Get Unstuck. Because number one, we have all been there. If you've been there, can you just say amen right now? Amen, hearty amen for me. I've been there several times in my life. We've all been there. There's grace. This too shall pass. I promise you, you will not be stuck forever. But number two, God desires your growth God desires you to get traction because once you have traction, then you have movement. Once you have movement, then you have growth. And if you belong to Jesus, it is not his will for you to be stuck indefinitely. Get unstuck. So the main idea this morning is this. The Christian life is becoming more like Christ throughout your life. Pretty simple, right? Christian life, becoming more like Christ throughout your life. So turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is where we are this whole summer in our teaching series, 2 Peter chapter 1. And by the time we finish this, you guys should have some of this memorized. We we go over it every week. But I'm going to ask you again, in honor of of the reading of God's word, go ahead and stand with me. We're going to start in verse 3, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control steadfastness, and to steadfastness, what's it say? Godliness. You guys can be seated. So the summary of our teaching series this summer is God has given us everything we need to work hard to continually grow in Jesus. All relationships, every relationship, your relationship with your spouse, your friends, your coworkers, your classmates, your boss, your neighbors, all relationships require three things. Time, sacrificial effort, and intentionality if you want to grow in those relationships. Time, 
effort, intentionality. I'm going to say those things a lot, which includes our walk with Jesus. Like I said, yesterday we had a marriage workshop. By the way, the first of two or three we're doing this year, carbon copy, exact same content. So next one will be October 1st, shameless plug. We want to see all the married couples go through these. And uh, it was so good. It was just, uh, we had such a, a great time doing it. And I told them the same thing. Every relationship takes time, sacrifice, or effort, and intentionality. You have to have those ingredients to grow, to increase in love. And so I essentially told them, for the love of God and for the love of your spouse, work at your marriage. For the love of God, because we love God and all things are about him and we want to glorify him in all things. For the love of God, work at your marriage. And for the love of your spouse, because you love your wife, you love your husband, and they are worth it. It's the most important relationship you'll ever have besides, besides your one with God. Work at your marriage. If you eat chips on the couch every night while you look at your phone instead of looking at your spouse, being on your phone instead of talking with your spouse, you're not going to grow in your marriage. You will grow in your waistline, but not in your marriage. Passivity plateaus you at best. Passivity plateaus you in marriage and in your spiritual walk. So that's why Peter says, make how much effort? Come on now, how much effort? Every effort. But here's the encouraging thing. It's God-empowered effort. His divine power has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. So only God can make people godly. He calls us to make every effort to grow in godliness, and we have everything we need for a godly life because he is the one that makes growth happen by his divine power and grace. Raise your hand if you are a gardener, if you have a garden at your house. Oh, we got a lot of gardeners in the house. This is awesome. You are probably loving this rain. This is great. So I am not a gardener at all. Like I have, I have a black thumb to the max. I'm not a gardener. But I know that when you garden, you cultivate. You have to cultivate your garden or nothing will grow. So what do you do to cultivate? You till the soil. You fertilize it. You plant the seeds. You put down, you know, the, the plants, the roots. You water the soil every day or several times a week. You are cultivating the soil. But do you cause the growth? Yes or no? Do you cause growth? Can you force growth? Those of you who have had plants die when you've done everything right, you know, no, you can't force growth. You don't cause growth, but you're making a naturally conducive environment for growth. But growth happens from the DNA within the plant. It's within the very DNA of the plant to grow. You're just cultivating things for that growth to happen. So in Christ, we have Jesus' DNA, which I'm going to talk about in a second, we already have that in us. It's within us to grow in godliness. There should be growth in godliness. So what is godliness? Well, the vast majority of churchgoers believe in God. In fact, 86% uh, of Americans believe there is a God. 86%, vast majority. 56% of Americans say they believe in the God of the Bible. They at least know about him or at least believe something about the God of the Bible. So the majority of Americans believe God exists. Most churchgoers, the vast, vast majority of churchgoers believes that God exists. But if I were to ask them, are you a godly person? If I ask you, are you 
a godly person, what do you think they would say? What would you say? Most would probably say no. Why is that? Well, I wonder if it's because there's a misunderstanding of what it means to be godly. Godliness is shorthand for God-likeness. God-likeness. Whether you realize it or not, and you probably do realize it, you have the physical traits of your birth parents. Whether you want those physical traits or not, you have those physical traits. So uh, you might have freckles like one or both of your parents, your birth parents. You might have similar eye color, ear shape. Maybe you have a widow's peak in your hair. I have what I call the Bryant nose. And uh, I remember when our oldest daughter, Genevieve, was born, people were looking at her like, oh, she's so cute. She has Skye's eyes. And I'm like, yes, because Skye has gorgeous eyes. And they would say, and she has your nose. And I'm like, no! Because <laughs> I'm thinking like, she's going to be all nose if that's the case. I got a big schnoz. It's the Bryant nose. It's okay. I've learned to live with it. Uh, physical trait from my parents. But we don't just earn physical traits. We don't just get physical traits. We get personality traits. Personality traits. We resemble those who raised us. Your parents, your guardians, those who raised you, you start to take on personality traits like them. So if you are an angry person, I'm willing to bet that one or both of your parents struggled with anger. I learned frugality from my parents. And so, I mean, I could squeeze a quarter out of a penny. You want, you want us to come to anything, just put the word free in front of it. Free food, free books, I'll be there. I, I love free, I'm, I, and I gained that from my parents. So physical traits, personality traits, we take on from our parents, from those who raised us. There's likeness. There's a resemblance in appearance and character. And godliness is God-likeness. Christ-likeness is resembling the likeness of Jesus. If you want to know what godliness is and what it isn't, look no further than Jesus. A godly person resembles God because he or she belongs to God. Now the Greek word for godliness is eusebia. Everyone say eusebia. You just learned a Greek word. So, New Testament was written in Greek, and this word here for godliness, eusebia, is literally translated well to worship, or, or worship aimed well. So worship comes from an old English word, worship. It's whatever you attribute the most worth to in your life. Everybody, everybody worships something or someone. It's whatever you value the most, whatever you give the most worth to. So maybe it's your sports team, maybe it's a band, maybe it's success in business, maybe it's your family, whatever. It's whatever you give the most ultimate, greatest worth to in your life, that's what you worship. And this says, it's worship aimed well is godliness. So it's greatest worth directed toward God instead of man. Godliness is worship rightly directed. It's worship aimed well Often, this word was used as a word for piety, having right reverence. You know, it's a shame that that word pious has been so trampled on in our society. Because what, what once was a great compliment of virtue is now used to dog someone. Oh, he's so pious. Oh, look at him. He's so high and mighty. But that's not what pious means. Pious just means devout and reverent toward God. Again, it's worship rightly aimed. 
So attitude of reverence toward the holy, majestic king of kings, and that inherent respect and reverence for God results in a life lived in obedience to him. R.C. Lucas calls it a very practical awareness of God in every aspect of life. So godliness is really a heart posture. A godly person lives in a way that pleases God. So worship, reverence, and knowledge that we talked about last week all go hand in hand. Why is that? Well, years ago when we lived in Nevada, I didn't own a gun. And uh, the men's ministry found out, you know, that my wife was pregnant with a little girl. And so uh, we had an event. After the event, I found out that they all chipped in money to buy me a shotgun. And they said, in 13 years, you're going to need this to potentially scare away suitors for her. I don't know if that's the best strategy or not. But I, I you know, I was so appreciative and, and uh, so thankful and a lot of love from these guys. And I was looking at this shotgun and I'm like, I have no idea how to use this thing. Like, is this like a pump action something or other? Like, what does that even mean? Like, I see the trigger. I know that's important. Like, how do you, how do you load this thing? I don't, know, I don't know anything about gun safety. Where's the safety? Like, I knew nothing about guns. So I had a few guys who said, don't worry. Uh, listen, we're going to go shooting. We'll go trap shooting. You guys know what trap shooting is? So when you shoot a clay disc and then you take a shotgun and you shoot at it, it's, it's a blast. I, well, <laughs> that was not meant to be a dad joke, but there you go. They just pour out of me. It was a blast. So uh, we, had, we had a ball. It was so fun. And, and uh, you know, they taught me how to use this gun. Where's the safety? How do, you do, how do you load it? How do you do all these things? But I'm telling you, when I had the gun, I was literally doing this. I was trembling. I was shaking because I was so nervous to use this thing. There was a fear. There was a reverence because I knew the power I held in my hand. So when I, I would shoot, and then I'd immediately point at the ground, and I'd turn the safety on. I knew that I went through all the things. I was sure, I would made sure, do not do what they tell you not to do and do what they tell you to do. There was a healthy fear. There was a reverence because of what I held in my hand that had the power for potential damage. And that knowledge led to reverence, led to healthy fear, which caused me to strive to rightly handle it. See, the ones who fear using guns are not the ones you need to worry about. It's the ones who, like, are getting drunk and, you know, haphazardly shooting at night. We have a technical term for them, boneheads. Like, those are the ones you got to worry about. Oh, you know, they're the ones that's going to, you know, shoot someone in the foot. They're the ones you got to worry about. They have no reverence there's no knowledge leading to fear, healthy fear of that gun. And when I begin to grasp how holy and infinite our awesome God is, I should have, we should have a reverent fear, a healthy, humbling understanding of his mighty power. And that knowledge leads to reverence, which then aims my worship toward him well. And our lifestyle, our obedience will always, always line up with what we worship. In fact, that's always the case. Your lifestyle always lines up with what you worship or who you worship or what you worship. You will all, and if you want to say it this way, you will always obey what you worship. Always. Because it has your greatest worth. It has your greatest value. So godliness is worshiped 
aimed well, rightly directed. Now, how do I know if I'm godly? Show of hands, how many of you have done a home kit DNA test like uh, 23andMe or Ancestry.com? Any, anyone done any of those? Okay, a few of you. So my wife was adopted, and so she doesn't know about her family history, never met her birth parents, doesn't know about her medical health history, any of that. You know, all the things you learn from your genetics. And so she's been dying to do a 23andMe kit. And so she did it earlier this year. You know, you take a little saliva sample, put it in a thing, you mail it off, and after weeks of processing and testing, they mail the results back. And it's incredible what they can know from your genetics. I mean, you find out who you are genetically. It tells you where you're from, from centuries back, like what region of the world your ancestors came from. It tells you about your ethnic makeup. It tells you about your health conditions and your health risks. It tells you about your genetic traits. It tells you even who you might be or are related to in the world currently. So if someone else is in their system, you might find out, oh, that's my second cousin or that's my, you know, sibling or cousin or whatever I didn't know I had, you find out who you're related to. You find out your whole family tree. And if we looked at your spiritual DNA, because 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old has gone, the new has come. Folks, you are new and transformed in Jesus. You have new spiritual DNA, new life in Christ. So we have Jesus' DNA in us, if you belong to Jesus. New spiritual DNA, if you will. If you've trusted in Jesus, if you have, you have Jesus' DNA in you. So if we were doing a spiritual DNA test, a Jesus 23 in me, what would you discover? What would it reveal about you? Maybe your spiritual appearance? Does your life resemble the world or God? Maybe your spiritual health condition? Is your heart healthy, desiring the things of God, or is it spiritually dead, craving after the things in this world that only lead to disappointment, destruction, and death? Maybe it'll tell you about your spiritual traits. Does your character increasingly reflect Jesus? What about your spiritual family tree? Do you have a love for followers of Jesus? What about your spiritual taste buds? Did you guys know that your taste buds die and grow every, about every two weeks? Did you guys know that? Some of your taste buds, they're, they're constantly replenishing, constantly dying and being regenerated, which is why every three to seven years, your tastes change. I used to hate pickles. Now I order extra pickles. Some of you used to hate cilantro. Now you love cilantro. Your taste buds are changing. That's part of actually your genetics your food preferences change over time. What used to taste good to you now tastes nasty and vice versa. What used to be bad now tastes good. Your spiritual tastes change as well. What you used to enjoy, you just don't enjoy anymore. It just doesn't taste good anymore. And what used to not taste good, maybe it was a drag to worship Jesus with other believers. Maybe it was a burden to read the Bible or to pray, now you can't get enough of it. You crave it because your spiritual tastes have changed. Your genetics, your spiritual DNA, your Jesus DNA in you has changed. So the things of this world just aren't appetizing to you anymore. Or at least they shouldn't be because Jesus changes you. I'm going to say that again with some responsiveness. 
Jesus changes us. He begins transforming your appetites, your desires, your likes, your dislikes, your values, your priorities, your affections, your adorations. Jesus begins changing you from the inside out. And others who knew you before you knew Jesus will now look at you and notice a difference. What happened to you? Like, what, what is wrong with you? You're, you're changing. I don't, I don't get it. You are just a different person. Next Sunday night at the Lake Baptism, you really need to go. Because one of the guys giving his testimony is a guy named Rich Ernest. And I met Rich at the men's event two Saturdays ago at the pickleball thing. And I'm talking with Rich in between games. And he says, hey, you know I'm getting baptized at the lake coming up. I'm like, that's awesome. Tell, tell me your story. And Rich said that last fall, Ron Dirks, I don't know if any of you knew Ron Dirks. Ron Dirks was from our Bethel Crown Point campus. He was, was a member of Bethel for 30 plus years, 30 to 40 years long-time member of Bethel. And he and some, some buddies went on a golf trip, a golf outing, and they, that morning they were supposed to play around. He hadn't shown up. So they went to his room, no answer. And they went in, and he died in his sleep in the middle of the night, unexpectedly. Now, praise God, he's with Jesus now. And his family rejoices in that, even in their grief. And so at the funeral, I mean, they preached the gospel. And so here's Rich, and he hears the gospel, and he gets saved. Because of Ron Dirk's physical death, Rich Ernest has spiritual life forever. Now, I would love to tell you more of the story, but you're just going to have to come to the Lake Baptism next Sunday night. You'll get the full story, and I promise you, bring some Kleenex. It's really, really good. But here's what he told me. Rich said, you know, my family and friends, they, they start, I notice they start talking about me differently, and they act differently around me, and, and they've told me, like, what's wrong with you? You've changed. Like, you're not the old rich anymore. And he goes, that's right, I'm not. I'm not the old rich anymore. I'm new in Christ. He's had opportunities to share Jesus with them. They're going to come to the lake baptism next Sunday, so pray for their salvation. He's, he's saying his friends and family is noticing a difference. Praise God. That's how it should be. Oh, that all of our loved ones would say that about us. What's wrong with you? What's different about you? You've changed. You won't shut up about Jesus. You won't stop praying. You won't stop reading your Bible. You, all you want to do is serve others. All you want to do is, is, is uh, selflessly, you know, give and, and meet people's needs. What is different? What happened? What changed? I'll tell you what changed. His name is Jesus. You see, there are two types of people. Really only two types, according to the Bible. Worldly or godly. You either belong to the world and love the world or you belong to God and love God. And according to 1 John 2, you can't do both. So turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, it's kind of near, it's actually right after 2 Peter. John writes, do not love the world. This is 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There's a clear dichotomy, God and the world. Now, when it refers to the world, it doesn't mean the world and all the people in it, it because God loves the world. We know that, John three sixteen. It means the unbelieving world that is opposed to God. 
So the unbelieving world, those who live for selfish pleasure, God and the unbelieving world are diametrically opposed. They have different goals, different priorities, different kingdoms, different kings, different values, different adorations. So you either love God or you love the world. You can only have one master. Only one master will own your heart. You can't have your cake and eat it too. That's what this is saying. And then you look at verse 16 and 17. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father. It's from the world. For the world and its desires are passing away, but the man who does the will of God will live forever. So selfish desires don't come from God. They come from the world. So there's something about your desires that reveal the condition of your heart. If your heart is regenerate, you are made new in Jesus. If you desire the things of God, that's because you belong to God. Your heart belongs to God. It beats for God. But if not, it longs for the things of this world that are not pleasing to God because your heart belongs to this world because you belong to this world. You are not of God. You are of the world. That's a tough passage, right? Now look at the next chapter, 1 John 3. Oh, what kind of love the Father has given to us, believers, that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. I'm going to read that again. And uh, if you're excited about it at all, well, you know what to do. So what kind of love, oh, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. We are children of God by faith in Jesus. That is incredible. He has adopted us. Verse 2, the reason why the world does not know us is it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There's Christ-likeness, godliness, godlikeness. And everyone who hopes in this way has purified himself just as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, keeps on practicing sin. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. So you're either born of God or born of the world. You either practice sin or practice righteousness. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. When you belong to God, when you trust in Jesus, you are an adopted child of the king of all kings. And he loves you like his own. And then like children, you begin to resemble God, our father. You reflect Jesus in your appearance, in your character, how you live and how you love So again, who do you resemble, God or the world? Do you practice sin or do you practice righteousness? When you practice something, it means you're getting really good at it. So don't do this right now, but after we're done, I want you to Google or go on YouTube and type in 
Charles Barkley Golf Swing. Maybe from like 2007. Say Charles Barkley Golf Swing 2007. It is the most atrocious, ugly golf swing I've ever seen in my life. Like it would make an infant cry. It's so bad. And I'm not a golfer, but it, it, was, it was bad. I mean, just, I, I'm not even going to mimic it. But it, 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 it wasn't great. And then you, I want you to then search Charles Barkley Golf Swing 2022. He was recently in a tournament, and apparently he got a good golf coach, and over the last few years, he's been practicing his swing, practicing, 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 practicing. And I mean, he, it looks like a PGA Tour swing. It's beautiful. What happened? He practiced. He practiced. He practiced. He practiced. If you want to practice something, you want to get good at something, you practice it. And this is saying you can either practice sin or practice righteousness. So it doesn't say we're sinless. We, we still sin. But if you practice sin, meaning you have a habit of sin and you're just getting really good at it, and you have no remorse, no conviction, no guilt, no shame over that sin, folks, you are not saved. That's what this is saying. You can't be. Because how would you have the Holy Spirit in you and be okay with sin? How could you be born of God and be totally fine with sin? That's what this is saying. You are either worldly or you are godly. So I, what if I ask the question again? Are you a godly person? If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, your answer should be what? Yes! Yes, I'm a godly person because God has made me my own. I am a child of the king of all kings. Yes, I'm a godly person. So are you a godly person, folks? So why would so many Christians say no to that question? Because they hear in that question, are you currently growing in godliness? And that's a different question. And the answer to that might be no. If you are born of God, you belong to God, you resemble God, you should want to grow in godliness. 1 Timothy 6.11 tells us to pursue godliness, pursue growth in godliness. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, train yourself for godliness. For while physical training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. When you work out, you are building muscle. It's strenuous. There's effort involved. And that's good. This actually says physical training is a good thing. You're putting in that sweat equity. But you know what's even better? This says spiritual training. Training for godliness is infinitely better because it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. So if you want to build spiritual muscles, you want to build godliness, you need to exercise those spiritual muscles. You need to put in that sweat equity lest those muscles atrophy. Again, it's time, sacrifice, effort, and intentionality. That's what's involved. Now how do I cultivate growth in godliness? Well, this is our last question. Look again at 2 Peter 1 verse 3. Through the knowledge of Jesus, which we talked about last week. So the initial condition is knowing Jesus, not just knowing about Jesus, knowing Jesus. And the more you know Jesus, the more you're saturated by Jesus, the more you want to know Jesus, his nature, his character, his deeds, and the more you will love Jesus and live for Jesus. Joe Thorne says it this way, our growth in godliness is a grace from God. 
derived from our union with Jesus and is a work of the Holy Spirit. And yet, we are active throughout in both killing sin and living to righteousness. So all the effort, all the action, all the work on our part in the process of sanctification must spring from faith in Jesus and be aimed at our hearts, not just our behavior. And that's growing in godliness. So let me give you eight helps, eight tips for growing in godliness. And I'm going to end on this. This comes from a 17th century Christian classic book called The Godly Man's Picture by Thomas Watson. So if you want to write these down, better pull out a pen and paper really fast. Eight things. Number one, trust the means of grace. Trust the means of grace. Prayer. God's word. Community. Worship. Evangelism. All these habits of grace, means of grace, we talked about last fall, trust the means of grace. These bring about increased knowledge of God, increased trust in God, increased conformity to God. So trust the means of grace. Number two, guard against worldliness. We talked about worldly or godly. Know its dangers. Guard yourself against its charms. Guard yourself against temptations. Spot the temptations. First Peter 5 says that. Satan is a, a, a roaring lion looking for who he can devour. Spot the temptations. Spot the charms, the worldly charms. Be guarded against those. Guard against worldliness. Number three, think holy thoughts. Think holy thoughts. Set your minds on things above. Colossians 3 says, set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand. Set your hearts on things above. The mind and the heart are connected. The, what you know is going to influence how you love and how you live. So think holy thoughts, which leads to number four. Watch your heart. Guard your affections. Again, this is worship aimed rightly, so aim it well. Again and again and again. Go back to the gospel to find your identity, your hope, your confidence, your strength. Number five, ponder the brevity of life. Psalm 90 says, number your days to gain a heart of wisdom. Our lives are so short. I don't know who the next Ron Dirks might be. We don't know when our time is up. So ponder the brevity of life, which leads to number six, redeem your time. Paul tells us to redeem our time, make the best use of our time. Realign your values and priorities. Number seven, surround yourself with godly people. An ember, a burning ember left alone will soon burn out. It will grow cold. But embers that are set close together will continue to grow, continue to glow, burn brightly. They'll set others ablaze. And we need community. Folks, we need to be set ablaze within community, burning embers, being one another together. And it just, it, the flames engulf, the flames of Jesus, the passion for Jesus. We sharpen and strengthen each other in community. So this is asking one another, hey, how how are you really doing? How's your marriage? How's your walk with Jesus? How can I pray for you? Those are deep questions we need in Christian community, in discipleship community. Surround yourself with godly people. And lastly, number eight, purpose to be godly. If you are in Christ, God saved you for his glory and, and he didn't just save you to get your fire insurance from hell. He didn't just save you to get your ticket punched to heaven. He saved you and calls you to be like Jesus. Godliness, God-likeness, Christ-likeness resemble Christ.
Stephen Cole says, spiritual growth is a long process, not a quick fix. It's like a a diet exercise program. It only shows results when you practice it consistently and you stick with it over the long haul. If you're not making such spiritual progress, then you're not well established. You are stuck in the mud. So set some spiritual goals and determine by God's grace to grow in godliness. Godliness is as much of a process as it is a quality. Those of you with little kids, you probably have in their bedrooms that measuring tape. You know what I'm talking about? Like the yardstick or the thing that's on the wall. And what do you do? You put your hand over this and you take a marker and you mark it. And then what do you write next to the marker? Their name, the date, and then they're here. And then a month later, where are they? Like here? No, I'm just but seems like it. They're like, man, you are growing like a weed. And you see their progress. You see their growth. You measure their height, their growth. Why do we not do that with our growth spiritually? Measure godliness, external and internal measurements, which is why, by the way, we need someone else to mark the growth. We need other people, community, to say, hey, I see growth in you. I see Jesus working in you. I see the Holy Spirit doing something in you. Uh, Later today, this afternoon, I'm going to send out on social media and through email spiritual growth assessments and spiritual health plan. Uh, I I went over it with the married couples yesterday in the workshop. It is a powerful tool to evaluate where am I spiritually and what are some next steps for me personally to grow in Christ. So I would encourage all of you, please, please avail yourself of that. Please make use of it. Again, make the best use of our time. Because, folks, the goal actually, listen to me. The goal actually isn't growth in Jesus. The goal is Jesus. Growth in Jesus is a means to that end. It's continued transformation in Jesus because we love Jesus. So growth is what we desire, but Jesus is the goal. And I want that more and more in our church family. I want to see that in me. I want to see it in you. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I want you to know the joy of trusting in Jesus instead of frivolously wasting your life living for the world that ultimately leaves you high and dry, heading toward disappointment, destruction, and death. I want you to know the, the Jesus, the joy, the life that we have. And if you're in Christ, I want you to grow in that life and flourish and thrive in Christ. And if I want that, how much more infinitely does our Heavenly Father want that? So let's grow in godliness.